We took communion today with, uh, with believers in Ukraine. We were united by God's love expressed through Christ, sacrificed on the cross, with believers on the other side of the world who are meeting today under the threat of war. Wow. My sister and her husband were missionaries in Ukraine for 10 years, and, you know, they're, they're connected. They showed me some pictures of folks getting baptized this morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's our excuse for not getting it? You know, for not making Christ the central feature of our lives. Like, do we, do we need to be under the threat of war uh, for us to understand how important this all is? I mean, the problem is, is we've forgotten, right? That's the problem. Problem is, is we'll go to Chipotle for lunch and they won't put enough guacamole on our burrito. And well, that's, that's what we're thinking about. But there is this whole universe of reality that we cannot see that should be directing and defining our lives. So we're in the book of Acts. We're in this journey series. And by the time we're done with this uh, journey series, we're going to have covered the whole New Testament, which I think is pretty exciting. So if you've never done that before, uh, at least you're getting that out of this. But the book of Acts is incredible. It is incredible. Isn't this book awesome? I mean, Jason pointed out like that story. A guy, I mean, this is unbelievable. A guy fell asleep during a sermon. I mean, who, I mean, that's incredible. And I did, just a warning, he died. So <laughs> I'm just, I'm just saying that. That's the Bible right there. That's not me. He died. But this book really gets me wound up. It's got all kinds of stuff. It's got conspiracy and intrigue and politics and shipwrecks and all kinds of things. Uh, in fact, the day, day one of the, the, the church being started, there's 3,000 people that get baptized. 3,000 people. I did the math. If there are 12 apostles baptizing one person every 30 seconds, how long would it take them to get through everybody? I actually think people got baptized, and then I think they turned around and started baptizing people in line behind them. I think that's probably what happened, because so many people were so compelled by this message because it was so different than anything that they had ever experienced before that they were like, we have got to get become a part of this, and the church just kept growing and growing. I would be overjoyed if we had three baptisms in a day. I would be like, whoa, what is happening? 3,000 baptisms. Just, it's, it's unbelievable. People selling their property, people selling their stuff and taking it to the church and saying, do with it what you think. And we would, right now, if you sold a piece of land and brought it to the church, we'd be like, folks in Ukraine need it. That's what we would do with it. But I mean, what, what an amazing time. And I honestly think this is true. If you are reading the book of Acts and not getting wound up, then there's something wrong and we need to pray for you. Something wrong because God was doing incredible things in the world, by the way, that he is still doing but we are just tuned out to it. So let's dig into this book. Let's give ourselves a, a big overview of what's happening. Um, and we're going to start with the last thing Jesus said in the book of Acts. And that's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He's got his guys around him, and he tells them, here's the marching orders. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, and the ends of the earth. And then pff, smoke, he's gone. They're looking up, seeing where did he go. And of course, Jesus has a little bit of flair for the dramatic, which I love. But Luke, the author who also wrote the book of Luke, structures his whole book on this verse. 
You'll notice that the first seven chapters, there's this little tiny dot that is Jerusalem. And that's where all the action takes place in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts. It's all happening right there in this one little town. The Spirit is coming, uh, there's persecution, there's crowds, arrests, eventually they scatter. And then by the time you get to chapter 8, they've moved into Judea and Samaria. They've moved into the region and things start to get rolling. Things start to go viral here a little bit. There's one guy that goes rogue. His name is Philip. And he starts going into Samaria and he doesn't know better than not tell them that they can be saved by Jesus too. And so the message starts to gain ground. And in fact, he finds himself um, with this Ethiopian government official and he starts teaching him. And then all of a sudden this message is just really starting to get out of control. And then by the time you get to chapter 9 through chapter 28, it's just all over the place. It's just all over the globe. And it's pretty amazing because the the way the book of Acts progresses, it follows that, that specific pattern. The last line of the book of Acts is Acts 28, verse 20, and it says this, For two whole years Paul stayed there. Now there is Rome, so it's gone from that tiny little dot all the way to Rome. In his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So it starts in Jerusalem, it's the center of the Hebrew world, and then it ends in Rome, which at that time was the center of the world world. But it's a strange ending. Like, as books go, if I was his editor, I would be like, Luke, you need to wrap this up a little bit nicer. This isn't resolved. But a lot of scholars believe Luke did that intentionally. He kind of left it open-ended because he wanted us to understand that we are continuing the story of Acts. We are part of the church that continues the work of Jesus Christ in the world. And so, no, the story doesn't end in Acts chapter 28. The story is happening right now. And we get to play a part in that. And that's exciting. The problem is, is a lot of us have abdicated our role in that story and we're letting other people in other places take the lead and I think that's a shame so a couple things I want you to notice we're gonna get into some some I think really really good stuff but I want you to see a couple things the book of Acts is essentially Luke part 2 the church strikes back something like that but Luke you'll notice sometimes he references the stories and he says we which means Luke witnessed the stories he was part of many of these stories I think that's pretty cool and then the other thing you might notice is that the first eight chapters of the book of, of Acts it's all about Peter Peter like gets everything started I mean it's all about Peter he's referenced over a hundred times in the first eight chapters and then you have this middle section between 9 and 15 where this other guy shows up on the scene and at first it doesn't look good. His name's Saul and things aren't going very good. He's persecuting the church, which of course causes it to scatter. But for that middle section, you do see Peter and you see this other guy, Saul. And then you get to Acts chapter 16 and beyond and Peter's gone. There's no reference to Peter after that point, not once. And it's all focused on this other guy named Paul. And just one little tiny little bitty thing that doesn't really matter, but it gets me worked up because I've heard whole sermons based on this. Saul and Paul, same guy. God didn't change his name. Saul is the Hebrew version of his name. Paul is the Greek version of his name. So when Saul was hanging out with his Hebrew buddies, they called him Saul. When he's hanging out with his Greek buddies, they called him Paul. It wasn't like there was some crazy thing where God said from on high, I change your name, you know. But I've heard whole sermons on that, but that's not what happened. So what's Luke up to? What's Luke up to in this whole thing? What's he trying to accomplish? What's the goal of the book of Acts? When you read through the book of Acts, as you get done this week, if you're caught up on your reading, 
What should you experience? What should you believe? What should you feel? What should you be compelled to do? What is Luke trying to accomplish through the book of Acts? Have you ever uh, had a conversation with someone where you say, I am a Christian, but I'm not that kind of Christian? You know what I'm talking about? Um, about 10 years ago, Westboro Baptist Church in Kansas made a lot of headlines and people would be like, oh, you're a Christian. You'd be like, yeah, yeah, but I'm not like, I'm not that kind of Christian. I'm not like them. Because we understand that Christianity comes in about 31,000 flavors, right? There's a lot of variations on Christianity and some of the variations are a little wacky. I have not watched this documentary, but uh, evidently on HBO, there's a documentary about a cult. And as you're watching the documentary, it comes to light that the lady who started the cult has roots in the Church of Christ. And you want to be like, yeah, we go to a Church of Christ, but we're not a cult Church of Christ, right? We're not like that. There's a lot of flavors. We're trying to be like Jesus kind of people, not the, the crazy extreme fringes that you sometimes see. Well, first century Judaism was exactly like that. A lot of flavors. We all think that it's very monolithic and everybody was the same, but it's a lot of variety. So on some extremes, maybe a little bit more fundamentalists were groups like the Pharisees who were like, you need to do things this way. This is how it is. This is how you should think. This is how you should believe. This is how you should act. But then there were also groups you've read about the Sadducees, and they were a little bit more philosophical and maybe a little bit more academic, and they, they, they really were a little bit more skeptical of things. But they were different groups, and there's all kinds of varieties. So when Christianity sort of began to show up on the scene, people didn't look at that and say, oh, that's something brand new and different. They just saw that as one more flavor on the, on the menu. They just saw that that's a branch of Judaism that's maybe a little out there and crazy. That's all they thought. It was just this little tiny corner of what Judaism was. In fact, they didn't call themselves Christians. Do you, do you remember from the reading this week, what two-word phrase did they use to describe themselves, describe Christianity? They called it the, the way, right? That sounds kind of cult-like, right? The way. Because they were referencing Jesus, who was the way. So people just thought, okay, that's some wacky people who think there's some Messiah that's come, but they're a little crazy, no big deal. So the central question of the book of Acts is how did this movement go from that tiny little dot on the map to like overtaking the globe? And we read in the book of Acts how it went all over the Mediterranean basin, but it actually went to Saudi Arabia and it went to India and Africa. It was all over the place. It went everywhere. How did Christianity go from this tiny little group of just a few people meeting in a room to being one out of every three people on the planet claiming, at least on some level, to believe in Christ? And that's what the book of Acts is really talking about. In fact, there's this picture I think is pretty uh, poignant because it is... Rome is the center of the universe, of the developed universe, and within several hundred years, Rome had been overrun by Christians, and the Colosseum that was used to kill Christians, they erected a cross in it. I mean, how did that go from this little tiny second-story room with a handful of people hunkering down to the biggest religious movement in the history of the world? And if it's that powerful to do that, what else might it do? If it's powerful enough to flood the world with this message, is it powerful enough to maybe have an impact on my life? I've said this every sermon I've preached. I've said, you can't sum up an entire sermon in one, or an entire book of the Bible in one sentence, and then I do it every single time. 
So I'm going to do it again today. You can't sum up an entire book of the Bible in one sentence, but if you could, the book of Acts would be summed up, I believe, like this. The story of Jesus will radically reshape anyone's life. Maybe you feel pretty good about life right now. It's good. Life is good. Got my taxes done. Life is good. I don't need anything. Job prospects are good. Maybe, maybe your family life is so good right now that you're about to sit down and write a book about how to be an awesome parent, right? Where some of us are thinking, hey, we had a baby blessing. Can we also do a teenager blessing some Sunday? Would that be okay? Maybe we could do that, bring all the teenagers up. That'd be awesome. But maybe you're like, no, 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 I've got this parenting thing nailed. My kids are going to be well-rounded, awesome citizens of the world. Maybe, you're, maybe people are coming to you studying your marriage saying, please give us the secret. What is the secret to having such an incredible marriage? Maybe you've got everything figured out. But all of us have these seasons of insecurity and pain and guilt and exclusion and purposelessness and failure. And so hearing this news that, wait a second, this Jesus can radically reshape my life seems like good news to a lot of us. Well, I got good news. It's Jesus. He will radically reshape anyone's life. Let's break this down. You guys have heard of Jesus, right? Yeah, we're, we're familiar. That wasn't true in the first century. When people were like, hey, have you heard about Jesus? They're like, yeah, I've got a neighbor named Jesus. It was a common name. It was a common Hebrew name. It wasn't anything special. Uh, we often don't name our kids in Western English-speaking cultures the name Jesus. We've kind of separated that, but it was just a common name. It was just a common everyday name. We had some new neighbors move in next door to us, and I, I was praying for these neighbors. I was like, God, please give us awesome neighbors that we can get to know, and we can, we can maybe even bring to church. We can just have really good relationships with. So I'm trying to figure out, how do, I, how do I meet my new neighbors? So I took them over, a welcome to the neighborhood gift, knocking on the door, knock, 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 knock. Nothing, nothing, nothing. I knew they were home because I'd see them come in the garage because I'm that kind of neighbor. <laughs> Nothing, no answer, no answer. And so finally I'm like, okay, well, fine. I'll just leave it on the doorstep. And, and, and a few days later it was gone. So either somebody stole it or they opened the door and took it inside. I still didn't meet him, still didn't see him. Um, and then around Christmas, I brought him over some Christmas treats. Same thing, knock on the door, no answer, no answer, no answer. Left him on the doorstep. And I'll go outside. Every once in a while, I've seen him outside doing something. So I'll like put on my you know, coat, go outside and pretend to shovel, even though I've already shoveled, just so I can make some eye contact. They won't even make eye contact with me. So I've concluded that this family is in the witness protection program. <laughs> I'm living next to some people who have some uh, a shady history. I don't know. A couple days ago, and, and let me tell you this, because if I ever do get through to them and they do show up to church, we're going to have some secret hand signal that lets you know that these are the neighbors. So just keep this between us, because I do hope they come someday. So the other day, uh, I, I'm on the phone. And somebody knocks on the door. It's this neighbor from next door. He's come over to our house. And I'm like, oh, this is the moment. But I'm on the phone and I don't know how to get off the phone. You know, like, what do I do? So my wife is interacting with his neighbor. They have a brief conversation. Door closes. She's done. I get off the phone and I'm like, well, what was it? Did they come to thank us for our wonderful uh, gift or being good neighbors? Me trying to make eye contact with them all the time. What, what did they come to thank us for? Did they come to connect with us? And she said, no, uh, they came to tell us that Liam shouldn't run in their yard. <laughs> nah, nah, you know, and I'm like, what? We don't have a sidewalk, so they want Liam to run in the street to go to the neighbor's house, but he was running through the backyard, and I'm like, so I'm like, oh, 
they want my child to put himself in danger just so that their snow can't be messed up? That's ridiculous. And I'm, I'm literally starting to think like, hmm, all right, well, I've tried the cookie route, but it's time to get serious now. It's time to get serious about like, can I, can I tune up my snowblower so it throws snow into their driveway? Can I, can I make some cookies and leave the sugar out of them and leave them? You know, like, what can I do? How can I do something mean? How can I do something bad? And as we're talking about this, I'm not actually talking about this. This is me daydreaming. Kareen says, I wonder, I wonder how we could bless them. Oh, Kareen, just go and ruin it. Like... Yes, I guess that's the right thing to do. How could we bless them? Now, here's the thing. I'm working from the cursed side of the menu. I didn't know there was another option on the back side of the menu that was all blessings. But Corrine has access to that side of the menu. You know why? Because of Jesus. Because Jesus has been part of her world and has reshaped her thinking so that when she's confronted by neighborly rudeness, she thinks, how can we bless them? Because Jesus has given her access to something more. And I think that's a wonderful, true, valuable thing. And it's been really thought, convicting for me to think about this week, how can I bless them? Jesus is still the central figure in the book of Acts, even though he disappears in the cloud right there in chapter 1. He's still the central figure in the book of Acts. And we've heard of him, but people in the first century had not heard of him. So you imagine when you think about people talking about Jesus, it's, it seems strange. It's just, it's like a common every, everyday name. It's, it's Zach or, you know, it's Steve. It's just a name. But as I was reading through the book of Acts, I started to underline every time I saw the phrase, the name. And there's just dozens and dozens of them. Here's some of them right here. And it's pretty interesting when you start at the very beginning, like Acts 2.38, that's every Church of Christ person's favorite verse. They were baptized in the name. Or when you think about uh, wonders performed in his name, or there's no other name, chapter 4, verse 12, no other name under heaven among which men might be saved. This is uh, Acts 10.13, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Acts 21, 13, I am ready not only to be bound, Paul says, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Meaning that these choices that they made, they were given access to because of Jesus. I was thinking about this fact, like Jesus was just a name. Imagine how this sounded to the first century person. There's no other name under heaven except Fred, among which men might be saved. How odd would that sound unless you knew who Jesus was? If, if you told your neighbor, hey, I'm going to be baptized in the name of Linda, you'd be like, what in the world is that? But there's something about this Jesus who gives us access to truth and reality that is, that is greater than what we have on our own. The name of Jesus gives us access Typically, I'm in my own little, you know, small, tiny world of Patrick. And you know whose name I worry about the most? Patrick's name. And wanting to make Patrick's name look good and wanting to glorify Patrick's name and wanting nobody to besmirch Patrick's name. Steve, you guys probably don't even remember what he said about me last week, do you? Yeah. He said I was lazy? I didn't know that. What? Just kidding. I listen online when I'm gone. I knew that. And I ask questions like, what would Patrick want? And what would Patrick do? And what would Patrick think? 
But when we think about this new reality that was being offered to humanity through Jesus, it was what would Jesus do? What would Jesus think? What would Jesus want? And that's why because of Jesus, we have this power to bless our neighbors instead of curse them. We have this power to persevere. We have this power, like these verses say, to speak boldly. I can't speak boldly in the name of Patrick. I'm too worried about myself. But if I worry about the name of Jesus, I can speak boldly. I can understand that guilt that I experience from my choices. In the name of Patrick, I cannot be forgiven of that guilt. I cannot say, in the name of Patrick, my sins are forgiven. That doesn't do anything. But in the name of Jesus, I have access to forgiveness. Yes. It's incredible. It's an incredible reality that is just woven throughout the book of Acts. So Jesus, the story of Jesus has the power to radically reshape anyone's life. Let's talk about that radically reshape there for a second. Radically reshape. Every time Jesus, the name of Jesus was spoken in a new place, two things happened. One of two things happened. Either entire uh, households and communities were transformed, or there would be a huge riot that started. Did you notice that as you were reading this week? It's just like every time Paul showed up, he was starting riots right and left. Either a new church would be planted or be these mass protests. Either entire households would get baptized or people end up in prison. It's so powerful that that's what happens when people show up bearing the name of Christ. For example, in Acts chapter 19, you read that earlier this week, we're introduced to this silversmith named Demetrius. Do you remember reading about him? And what he does is he runs the gift shop near the temple of Artemis. So when people go to worship the goddess Artemis that's in Ephesus, then they have to exit through the gift shop and they have to buy a t-shirt and they have to buy a little silver statuette so they can bring the likeness of the goddess back home. Well, Paul shows up in Ephesus, and you know what Paul does not do? Paul does not say silversmiths are dumb. He doesn't say statuettes are dumb. He doesn't say idols are dumb. He just starts teaching them about what is real. And once people have access to what is real, they stop pursuing what is fake. And Demetrius starts to see his sales decline because people no longer want those statues of something that isn't real because they are being transformed by what is real in the name of Jesus. And so he says, uh-oh, this is bad news. And he gathers the guild, the silversmith guild together, and he says, we've got to do something because they're hurting our livelihood. And he starts to get people wound up, and he starts spreading this propaganda, and he starts a riot in the center of the city, and it just goes crazy. And my favorite line that Luke writes in Acts chapter 19, verse 32, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like, like a modern protest? I'm really mad. I'm not sure why. You know, it's like, it's just, we're, we're, we're outraged. Why? I don't know, because I have a sign. I don't know. I love it. It's been true for thousands of years. Christianity disrupted the local economy in Ephesus. Paul showed up and it, it transformed the local economy because he spoke the name of Jesus. Isn't that crazy? I think Christianity should disrupt the status quo. I think it's a tragedy when it doesn't. I think it's a little bit of a tragedy when we enter our workplaces and we don't elevate the culture around our work. 
because we bear the name of Jesus. It should disrupt what's happening in those places, our classrooms, our neighborhoods, our homes. I think it's a tragedy because the name of Jesus should disrupt the status quo. In fact, this is, this is important. Christianity should be disruptive to sin that has embedded itself in culture. Think about this. In the first century, men were expected to have mistresses. They were expected to sleep around. It was a little bit of a badge of honor. Men could sleep around and there was no shame to it. A woman would do that and she would be called names. Or like in John chapter 8, she would be dragged before a group of people for judgment. Where was the dude in John chapter 8? And Christianity came along and said, yeah, it is wrong for women to sleep around. And it's also wrong for men. Men, you got to be men. You got to take care of your families. You got to make better choices. And Christianity held men accountable. And that was disruptive to the culture. Think about this. This is unbelievable to, to, to consider. Slavery existed in the first century. Do you think it's possible that there were churches where a slave was appointed as an elder of a local congregation? in which his master was a member? Do you think that's possible? I think it's possible. How long could that condition exist in that master's home when the slave was his spiritual authority? Christianity came in and from the inside out disrupted those social norms so that they could no longer exist. People had to fight to perpetuate those evils. That's an unbelievable idea to see how that transformed reality. Christianity should be disruptive to sin that has embedded itself in culture. We should make people annoyed, not intentionally. We're not trying to provoke. We're not trying to hurt. We're not trying to outrage. But our lifestyle and our choices should make people frustrated with us because there's something different and powerful about the name of Jesus. There's a lot of uh, nuance and complexity to what I'm about to tell you, so feel free. And there's a lot of math, so feel free to double-check me. About 62% of American adults claim to be members of a church. 62%. It's a little bit of a surprise. I thought it would be lower, but 62%. Now, again, there's a wide variety of what constitutes members of a church, right? Maybe some people are on the rolls, but they never go. Who knows? I don't know what that means. But 62% claim to be members of a church. Three out of five adults. If just those adults, just those adults that claim to be members donated 10% of their income, just 10% of their income, you would have enough money to end world hunger. You would have enough money to stop deaths from preventable, treatable diseases. You would have enough money to provide clean water in every developing country. You would have enough money to eliminate childhood illiteracy all over the globe. And you would still have about $100 billion left over. If just people who claimed to be Christians gave just 10% of their income. That's all it would take. It's unbelievable. How about this? If just people who claimed adults, not even kids, just adults who claimed to be Christians... If only 0.05, 0.05, that's a very tiny fraction. If 0.05 adults who claim to be Christians were to adopt a child, do you know how many orphans there would be in the United States? There would be a waiting list for people to adopt. There would be zero orphans in the United States. 
If just point zero five, our church is doing better than average, so yay. But listen, point zero five of people who claim to have been reshaped by Jesus were to do things that Jesus would encourage them to do, there'd be no orphans in the United States. If all, think about it, I was thinking about this. I was doing the math, and if I, I was thinking, if all the adults just at Woodbury, just in our church, just in our first, in our first service and our second service, if all the adult, adults here just brought one person to Jesus over the next 12 months, just one person, you don't have to go out on a street corner with a megaphone and, you know, yell at people, but if you just had someone you knew that needed to be reshaped by the name of Jesus, just one person, and over the course of 12 months you prayed and talked and discussed and had them over for dinner and went out to coffee and got involved in their lives, and over the course of 12 months they became a member of this church, what would that mean for us? If that were true, if we knew that were true, we would have to, right now today, start a capital campaign to build a bigger building because we wouldn't be able to fit in here. The kids' wing, they would be stacked on top of one another. You would, like, if you think it's hard to remember people's names now, forget about it. There would be no parking outside, absolutely no parking. You would have to park along Dale, and we would have to, like, work a shuttle system to get you to the building. It would just be unbelievable. By 2025, it would be standing room only at three different services on a Sunday morning by 2025. If just... All the adults were committed to reaching out to one person over the period of, a period of 12 months. It's pretty unbelievable. It made me think of like the, the John Lennon's Imagine song, you know, but with religion, imagine all the people took Jesus seriously. What would that look like? Woodbury, this community would look different, but so would your neighborhoods. It would be different. Things would be different. The, the power of the name of Jesus would radically reshape your family, your neighborhood, your community. All right, let's go to this last section of this, and I'm going to hurry so we can wrap up. This last, this last phrase, anyone. By far, the biggest controversy in the entire New Testament is this idea that anyone is invited. Now, if I were to say, if I were to stand up here and say, hey, everybody, you're all invited, people would be like, yes, of course. We're Americans, and we are all invited everywhere all the time. That's the way things should be. But that is not true in the first century. There was very rigid social structures. There were very, very clear insider-outsider dynamics. And, and I know not everybody always feels welcome and always feels connected. I know that's true now, and that was very true in the first century. So you have this thing that goes from this tiny little Jewish minority to this global thing, and it's because in Acts chapter 8, Philip goes rogue and he starts talking to non-Jewish people. But crucially, they still kept Hebrew kosher laws. But in Acts chapter 10, Peter's drawn into this, this interaction with these Gentiles. Anyway, long story short, what happens in Acts chapter 2, where the Spirit is poured out on the Hebrew people, is recreated in Acts chapter 10, but this time with non-Hebrew people. And this blew people's minds. It's what the book of Ephesians calls the mystery of Christ, that everybody's included. Because what they were doing, Paul's, let me tell you Paul's entire missionary journeys. This is all Paul talked about. He would go to a new place and he would be like, hey, everybody's included. And people would be like, well, yeah, yeah, everybody except Gentile. No, 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 everybody. Well, yeah, everybody, but everybody has to follow our dietary rules, right? No, everybody. Yeah, everybody, but they have to be circumcised. No, everybody. Well, everybody, but not people from that country. No, everybody. That's all Paul did all the time was try to get them to understand that this truth was for everyone. In fact, did you notice in Acts chapter 11, he, he got in a little bit of hot water because he had talked to non-Hebrew people. 
And so verse 1 of chapter 11, the apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And Peter went up to Jerusalem and then the circumcised believers, that's a whole thing, criticized him and said, hey, you went into the house of an uncircumcised man and ate with him. Well, that's a big no-no according to our traditions. And so in verse 4, starting from the beginning, and what Luke does is he tells the story of Peter and this interaction with Gentiles. And then in the very next chapter, he tells it almost word for word again, because Luke is trying to beat into our heads that everybody is included. And he's going to repeat it as often as he needs to. He's going to shout it so people in the back hear it. Everybody's included. And you know what? That is true. We want that to be true, but that doesn't always feel true. It doesn't always feel true. Some of you feel very included and loved and accepted. Some of you still feel like you're outsiders, maybe because of something in your life or your past or something that's going on. And that is a shame to us that we haven't made everyone feel loved and accepted and included. And some of you are like, but we can't make them feel loved and accepted and included if they have sin in their lives. Absolutely you can. Absolutely you can. Did you know? Jesus hung out with sinners. They felt convicted about their sin while at the same time feeling accepted by Christ. Convicted and accepted all in the same meal. Can you imagine that? Maybe a tricky balance to pull off, but we could do it. We could do it. So maybe this doesn't seem like earth-shattering news to you, but the story of Jesus can radically reshape anyone's life. Even the person you're thinking about. Even you. The story of Jesus can radically reshape your life. Amen. We could talk for weeks. <laughs> I mean, seriously, there's so much that I was like, ah, I want to talk about that, but I can't. But I just want you to imagine a church community that believed that, that believed that for themselves, that Jesus, the name of Jesus is, is the power to reshape my life. Imagine if you believed that. What would be different about your life? Would it look exactly the same? Would you make exactly the same choices? Because if it would, then that's a problem. Because you're operating in your own name and not in the name of Jesus. What, what would be different about your life if you believed, truly believed, that the name of Jesus could powerfully, radically reshape anyone's life? Maybe you would interact with your neighbors differently. Maybe you would bless them instead of <laughs> curse them. Maybe you would interact with your spouse or your children differently. Maybe your marriage would improve. Maybe your work ethic would improve. But what needs to transform? Listen, church, this is, this is the bottom line is there's too many of, let me say you, it's me too, but let me say you, there's too many of you who are coasting along the status quo and you are not allowing Jesus to transform who you are. There's too many of us. That needs to change because we are disciples of Christ. Listen, I'm including myself in that. I've got so many areas, problematic areas. You could probably pick them out. You could probably make a list. How can the power of the name of Jesus change your life? If you're not serious um, about Jesus, then this, this church is, is going to feel awkward for you. 
it's not it's not going to feel good to to come and and to be challenged uh, every week because you're going to have to really build up a thick crust uh, against your conscience. I, I want to be part of a church that just deeply loves and cares about Jesus. I would love to be in three services packed to the gills and parking on the streets. I'd love that, but I would love it even more if we were just a body that was so committed and devoted to the name of Jesus Christ. That's that's what matters. That's what truly matters to me. Amen. If that's not what matters to you, well come but we're going to talk about it all the time you know we're going to make it happen and we want we want this to be a place where you feel that challenge every week let's pray father in heaven do not let us leave here without feeling the conviction that you have for us to transform our lives God, convince us that you don't want to harm us or shame us or guilt us, but you want to rescue us. Lord, you are for our good. You have given everything for our good. God, would you please breathe your spirit into this room and that everyone would feel your presence and just be motivated to take that next step of faith. We pray that for every person here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.